are back here for another episode of Beyond the Whistle. It's episode 15 and our biggest one yet. We have a great guest here, Kenny Albert, joining us today. Kenny, thank you for joining us, first of all. And how are you doing? I'm great, guys. How are you? Hopefully you're uh, healthy and staying safe. That's the most important thing these days. Yep, we're, we're doing well. You know, this TV is keeping us occupied, keeping us sane, and having guests like you on definitely lifts the spirits and, and keeps us in a better mood. So let's start off. I mean, you've had a legendary career. You call four major sports, and you do so much more than that, NFL, MLB, NHL, and the NBA. So people have definitely heard your voice sometime in their lives if they've just watched the TV and scrolled through the channels. But let's talk about your early broadcasting career. Now, obviously, your, your father has been in the business for, for decades and is one of the greatest to do it, just like you are today. He gave you a tape recorder on your fifth birthday. So, I mean, I guess he was really putting it in your hands to see, uh, see what you had. And then when you turned six, uh, on your sixth birthday, you went to a Rangers game and you stepped in to be the statistician of an NHL game. Tell us about that experience and your early love for broadcasting, picking up uh, where your father left off in a sense, or still is. <laughs> Well, you've definitely done your research, Ian. Uh, I did receive a tape recorder. It was more of a toy tape recorder, not not a real recorder, uh, although it did record audio uh, for my fifth birthday for my parents. And uh, thinking back, uh, there was never any pressure to start doing play-by-play or to get into broadcasting. It was just something that I always loved. Mm -hmm. I did have my father and my two uncles who were sportscasters for a long, long time. Uh, doing play-by-play on, on so many different sports. And um, I always joke that when I think back uh, about uh, and think about uh, the family dinners at birthdays and holidays when my uncle Stephen Al would come to our house, it felt like the first all-sports radio station because they were <laughs> telling stories about the various teams and players who they had spent time around. So I would just try to, uh, via osmosis, um, you know, have everything kind of sink in and, and I would learn that way. And I would, I would use this tape recorder um, in my bedroom. I set it up like a TV or radio studio. I had my desk and then the bed in the middle and the TV on the other side. And I would announce games into the tape recorder probably from the time uh, when I was six until about 14 or 15. And occasionally I would bring it to games at Madison Square Garden or Shea Stadium. Wow. And I also enjoyed writing. I did a lot of uh, writing for the school newspaper, the town newspaper on Long Island where I grew up. And really, my first big break was uh, during my uh, sophomore year of high school, 10th grade. It was June of 1984. Mm-hmm. Like Fort Washington Schreiber High School was the name of the school I attended. Yep. And uh, I had covered all the, the basketball games and the football games and the baseball games. So I, I, I was always at the events uh, covering for the newspaper. And I, I got to know the coaches and some of the players and really enjoyed uh, the writing aspect. And one day in January of 84, a small cable television station out of Breitnet, Cox Cable, showed up out of the blue to, at my high school to film a girls' mm. football game. Yeah. And I was introduced to the producer uh, by the athletic director who knew I had an interest in broadcasting. And he uh, asked me if I wanted to volunteer and do the play-by-play for that girls' basketball game. Clipped a microphone onto my shirt, <laughs> and I sat in the second or third row. The people around me probably thought I was nuts talking yep. to myself throughout the course of the entire game. But um, after the game, I chatted with the producer, uh, Roy Menton, who was a great man, passed away a couple of years ago. And he offered me the opportunity uh, to do play-by-play 
over the next three years, it turned out for hundreds of games, high school games, some college games at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. They had a division mm-hmm. basketball and football program, and it was just unbelievable experience. Uh, things were a lot different back in the 80s. There were no sports casting camps in the summer. Yeah. So many that do such a great job. So I felt like I had a three-year head start on anybody else my age who was interested in play-by-play because nobody else really had the opportunity until college. And here I was in high school, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, calling all these games, all kinds of different sports on cable television. And uh, similar to you guys, I would bring my friends along to do color commentary. So (laughs) they had a lot of fun with it as well. Totally. Must have been a great time. We always talk about getting more and more experience. So let's talk about it. I mean, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, you're calling games, different sports. What is your dad saying when you come home and say, I'm doing play-by-play for a real cable news station now? What is he saying? Does he have any advice for you? Well, I would definitely bring the tapes home, and, and he would check them out. Um, you know, I, th- I think he definitely knew that I had an interest in, in play-by-play, but I think he also at that time thought that perhaps I would go the writing route. I had done so much uh, writing and, and was involved in journalism. But um, as the years moved on, I wouldn't really ask too many questions. It was more uh, just learning by example, watching him do his job. And Ian mentioned doing the stats for him at a Rangers game in Washington when I was seven years old. I was just about to turn seven. And uh, the regular statistician had to leave the game early to catch a flight. So I sat in. But I would would sit in the broadcast booth, behind the booth, um, you know, behind him and whoever his partner might have been on on a given night and just soak it all in. And when I was old enough to start doing the stats on a regular basis, when I was about 14 or 15 at the hockey games and when I was in college for the Knicks games, when uh, he was working on the cable TV side, um, just being around it, uh, meeting so many people, uh, it definitely helped open some doors as far as internships. And it was just Mm -hmm. a a tremendous experience growing up. So at 14, you became the official statistician of the Rangers on the radio, which is crazy as it is. And then at 16, you mentioned the writing. You wrote content for the Rangers program. So after that three-year head start at high school, you, uh, you took your experience to NYU where your dad graduated um, prior. And tell us what drew you to uh, NYU and you ended up graduating with a, a degree in broadcasting and journalism. You, you worked for the uh, WNYU radio station. So what drew you to NYU? And tell us about your college experience as you continued to gain much-needed experience for your eventual well, career. He did graduate from NYU, like you said. He only spent one semester there. He actually went to Syracuse for three and a half mm-hmm. years. Yeah. Started to work with Marty Glickman, who was one of the great yep. broadcasters back in the 50s and 60s. And he had interned for Marty and kept stats for him. And there was an opportunity during his senior year of college to start working full-time with Marty Glickman. So at that point, he left Syracuse, moved back to New York, finished up at NYU, and, and did, in fact, graduate from there. Um, you know, you guys will get a kick out of this story because I'm, I'm sure you're starting to look at colleges. I had two criteria. Uh, one, I did not want to be away from the NHL for four years. So I was <laughs> only looking at schools in cities near NHL teams. So I was smart schools in Boston and Washington. And New York and NYU kind of uh, came entered my mind a little bit later on. Uh, initially, I was looking at schools such as George Washington University, University of Maryland, Boston. Mm-hmm. Did wind up at NYU. Uh, one of my other reasons at the time was I had heard great stories about uh, some of the other schools that had tremendous broadcasting programs like Syracuse and Fordham and uh, Northwestern and, and so many others. Yep. But 
I had also heard that there were so many students interested that you might not get an opportunity to be on the air until your sophomore, junior, senior year. So I wound up at NYU. I had met the sports director, uh, CJ Papa, who was three years ahead of me, who uh, has worked in the New York area now for 30 plus years on, wow. on various media outlets. We met during my senior year in high school, uh, ironically, at an Islanders game. And he told me about the radio station at NYU. And it turns out there were only about five or six students who were interested in doing sports there. Mm. So I felt like, well, maybe you get to do a little bit of everything right from the start, which we did. Now, it was a smaller sports program. It was Division Three. They had a really good Division Three basketball program, both men's and women's. And we did get to travel because they were in the University Athletic Association. They still are. So we would travel to Boston, Chicago, St. Louis, Atlanta. So although it was D3, we had the opportunity to travel with the team and broadcast the games uh, back to the station uh, on campus, WNYU. But right from the start, freshman year, one of us would do play-by-play, one of us would do color, one would keep the stats, one would be the engineer, one would produce back at the stations, and we were all friends. So Mm -hmm. we all had an opportunity right from day one. Uh, even though it wasn't a D1 huge sports program, we got such great experience from our freshman year on. Terrific. That's amazing. Uh, just five guys going over to major cities to produce T3 basketball games. That's the life right there. Uh, so I want to get more into your professional career. And a question that is always on my mind, you know, we're reading through your accolades, every sport. The Olympics stand out to me. And I was listening to a podcast with Bob Costas, you know, the king of the Olympics, along with Mike Tirico. And I wondered, what do you have more fun calling, the Olympics or the professional sports leagues here in the Americans, America? Well, it would be hard to compare and pick one over the other, Dylan, because I love them all. Uh, very fortunate to be involved in four different sports on a regular basis. And I'll take you back to 2002 when I first uh, broadcasted hockey at the Olympics in Salt Lake City. And sometimes you have to be real fortunate in the right place at the right time. I was in New Orleans uh, working a college football skills competition show for Fox. The Super Bowl was in New Orleans, and I was down there working on this other show. And I, I received a phone call. It was late January 2002. And it turns out the great Mike Emmerich, the best hockey broadcaster of all time, was scheduled to go work the Olympics for NBC along with Gary Thorne. They were the two hockey broadcasters on the men's and women's side. And Doc Emmerich had to pull out due to a family situation at the last minute, a week, 10 days before. So I received this phone call, obviously jumped at the opportunity and worked uh, along with my partner, Joe Micheletti, 23 games in 12 days, men's and women's ice hockey. Wow. Two games a day. You get back late. You'd have to start preparing for the two games the next day. And that led to... Uh, opportunities at the next four Winter Olympics, 2006, 10, uh, 14, and 18, culminating with the women's gold medal game in Pyeongchang when they beat uh, Canada in the shootout. And I also worked one Summer Olympics as well in uh, Rio, working on the track and field broadcast. But the Olympics aren't like uh, anything else that I do. It, it's it's so compact, uh, a two-week stretch. And like I said, there, there are two games a day oftentimes, and – you don't get a lot of sleep and you're always preparing for the next game. And you're not as familiar with all the players, uh, the, the years that the NHL participated, uh, all of the winter Olympics. I worked aside from 2018. Uh, I was so familiar with those players, but there were still other teams, other countries, not as familiar with some of the foreign countries on the women's hockey side. So there's a lot of studying, uh, a lot of homework, but 
it's so much fun. You go on adrenaline, you get about four or five hours of sleep every night, but uh, you just have this special feeling uh, anytime you call an Olympic game for sure. So that's awesome. And the, the amount of games you did over that short period of time, short team seems exciting, but also exhausting. And another time where you really showed your versatility. Um, back in 2009, in October of 2009, you called four sports in four days. Uh, you called a Viking Steelers NFL game. You called, uh, you were in the uh, Yankees locker room after they won the AL championship. You called a Knicks game and a Rangers game on radio. So I don't know how you were able to pull that off, but did you know in advance, like how long in advance did you know you were going to be doing four major sports in four days? And how was that experience like being able to touch so many different broadcasts in such a short amount of time? Well, there was a slight asterisk on that one, Ian, because the Yankee game, I was handling the post-game interviews. I wasn't actually yep. doing by play, but I was still a part of the broadcast. Um, knew about three of the four uh, weeks prior and months prior, uh, the Yankee interview situation kind of came up at the last minute. Um, but there have been mostly in October. That's really the only time it can happen normally. Uh, the last couple of years, I've had a few similar situations where I had four sports play-by-play-wise in about a six, seven, eight, nine-day stretch with NFL games on Sunday, baseball playoffs during the week, and then a Ranger game at some point, and a Nick preseason game on the TV side. So uh, those times of the year are a lot of fun. You have to be organized and really get ahead as far as the preparation, you know, starting weeks and days in advance uh, just to make sure you have everything in order. I tend to get a lot of work done on the road, on planes, mm -hmm. in uh, taxis, Ubers, in hotel rooms. So sometimes I actually get more done uh, there when there are less distractions than when I'm home. But uh, it's a lot of fun, uh, October, with multiple events, multiple sports. And then also normally this time of year in April and May with the NHL playoffs uh, over the first two rounds, bouncing back and forth between several cities. And then uh, usually I work the Western Conference Final, which would be taking place right now, and unfortunately – uh, we're all at home just waiting mm -hmm. for to get back to normal. But uh, those times of year are certainly a lot of fun working multiple events, multiple sports in such a short time. I mean, let's get into baseball right now. I mean, you, that was the only sport you didn't call through those four days uh, stretch. But everyone knows the one baseball call, and it's got to be the Jose Bautista call. Everyone, even if you don't like baseball, you look at Jose Bautista flipping a bat, and you say, that's my, that's the my favorite moment from the sport. Was that the loudest you've ever heard a stadium? Probably the loudest I've heard at a baseball stadium. And, and I was there when the Mets won the World Series in 86 as a fan. I was there in the stands when the Yankees won in 2009. So I've been to championship-type settings. Um, hockey arenas, you know, when a, when a playoff series is won or a Stanley Cup is won, obviously get real loud indoors. Uh, but that night, late afternoon, early evening in Toronto, Rogers Center, the roof was closed, so it was an indoor stadium. And uh, when Bautista hit the home run, I'll never forget, A, how loud it was, B, how intense it was in the building. It was a crazy seventh inning. It took 53 minutes. All kinds of uh, crazy stuff happened, as you guys know. And it's funny. I, I do less baseball than uh, the other sports. It's usually about 10 to 15 baseball games a year. Uh, but that is the one call that I probably, along with the women's uh, gold medal game, uh, the shootout in 2018, but the Bautista bat flip, the home run, that game, I probably get asked about more often than any other work. Well, I mean, I bet you continue doing this for so long because you live for those moments to get those moments. 
And Dylan and I can only dream of being in that position one day, hopefully getting those opportunities. So obviously, I want to bring it back a little bit more to your childhood and growing up and for your love of broadcasting. Obviously, you were a fan of your father's and you idolized him. But I also found that you were a fan of uh, Canucks legendary play-by-play broadcaster, Jim Robson, if I'm not mistaken. Um, do you, um, if I'm not correct. So I don't know if you were able, if, if you, I can't speak English, if you were ever able to met, meet Jim, but were you able ever, were you ever able to meet him? And what did you take away from him from such a young age that you just fell in love with? Well, it's a, it's a great question, Ian. You might be wondering why I became a fan of, uh, of Vancouver Canucks announcement. Yeah. York. For some strange reason, during my childhood, I was a Vancouver Canucks fan. I had the jerseys. Uh, I would cut out the box scores from the newspaper. And anytime they would come play one of the New York teams, I would go up to the broadcast booth. Back then, a lot of them were within the stands. A lot of the arenas didn't have the separate press boxes like they do now. So I started a relationship. I met him initially through my father, but I would write letters at the time. There was no email, no stuff. Yep. I would write letters, and we would correspond, and I would go see him whenever – uh, the Canucks played in town. Didn't get to hear too many of his broadcasts because back then you couldn't pick up stations from across the country. Uh, there was no satellite radio. I actually did see him this past season when the Rangers played in Vancouver. Awesome. He's retired. He's yep. in his 80s now, but he happened to come to the game and we had a nice chat. But we also did not have cable television. Our area on Long Island where I grew up was not wired for cable mm. until I was about 17 or 18. So I was a big radio listener and I would listen to all of the New York teams uh, Yankees games, Mets games, Islanders, the Devils when they came to New Jersey in 82, Knicks, Nets, uh, Giants, Jets. I was watching games on TV as well, but big radio listener. So I, I tried to study a lot of those broadcasters and try to take maybe a little piece from everybody out there, whether it was the vocabulary, the style, uh, and just the overall pacing that, that they included during their broadcast. I remember listening when I was a kid, John Sterling was the radio voice of the Islanders back in the 70s on WMCA, and he also hosted a sports talk show. And his big call, whenever the Islanders scored, he would scream, Islander goal, Islander goal. And they weren't very good back in the early 70s. But he was <laughs> so excited whenever the Islanders scored a goal. He was also the radio voice of the New York Nets of the ABA at the time as well. So it's crazy to think that over 40 years ago, I was listening as a kid to John Sterling, who's still the radio voice of the New York Yankees. I wonder wow. if he still has the special goal calls for the Islanders like he does for the Yankees' home runs now. Yeah, he did. He, he would scream, Islander goal, Islander goal, every time they scored. So uh, he was no longer with the Islanders when they started winning Stanley Cups in 1980, <laughs> but uh, he was one of their uh, signature voices back in the early days. I'm going to wrap it up now because I know you have a lot of things to do. I mean, you're one of the people who are busy during this time. Sadly, we are not. Anyways, uh, <laughs> it's a question that we like to ask all our guests at the end. What is one piece or one phrase of advice that you'd like to give dunk sportscasters like us? Well, first of all, unfortunately, I'm not very busy these days, uh, just like you guys. Uh, hopefully that changes real soon. And, yep, hopefully. Uh, it's been great joining you guys, and I'm happy to do it again at some point if the, if the, uh, the time ever comes and if you ever are in need of a guest uh, on one of your future shows. But my, my biggest piece of advice would be to do as much as you can. I know you're in your later high school years now, uh, looking ahead to college. And, um, you know, like I said, even though I wanted to do play-by-play, I did a lot of writing. That uh, gave me great experience with vocabulary, with, uh, um, you know, even now when we do our opens to games, a lot of times you write that out beforehand. And mm -hmm. um, 
also behind the scenes, even if even if your goal is to be in front of the camera, in front of the microphone uh, during those college years, there are so many jobs behind the scenes as well to learn that side of the business in production. So uh, you can't go wrong. Just try and do internships and uh, get as many uh, hands on as much hands on experience as you possibly can. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great time. Episode 15 of Beyond the Whistle. Ian, Dylan, and Kenny Albert. Well, Dylan, I know you're headed out west to ASU, so good luck out there. Ian, uh, a year or two left of high school. I listened to some of your work. You were terrific on basketball and football play-by-play. So keep up the great work and feel free to be in touch anytime. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Again, it means a lot.